0: This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Religious Refugees, Deconstructing Towards Spiritual and Emotional Healing. Have you been questioning your faith and spiritual beliefs while leaving the familiarity of your religious homeland? Have you been negatively affected by toxic religion, knowing in your heart of hearts there must be a more liberating spiritual way? Have you experienced loneliness, isolation, and fear of rejection from religious others just because you are a more inclusive, creative, and expansive person? Join the legion of others on the road to healing
1: and self-discovery, and let Dr. Mark Karras' book, Religious Refugees, Be Your Guide.
0: What's up, friends? Happy Thursday to all of you. January 5th is when I'm releasing this episode. I, we're already five days into the new year. And I have two episodes out. So at this rate, look forward to a lot of podcast content. But there's a reason I'm releasing this episode today for, actually, there are two reasons. Number one, tomorrow is January 6th, which marks two years since the insurrection. And this conversation that I had uh, with Leah Robertson and Diana Butler-Bass at Theology Beer Camp in October is still so relevant, especially now, maybe more than ever. So I wanted to share this episode with you, but also I wanted to promote what Trip Fuller is doing this month. He wants to start off 2023 as best as possible. So he's doing a four-week class called Experiencing God, Discerning the Divine in Human Experience, featuring 11 lectures from different scholars across academic disciplines. Spoiler alert, most of them are from Theology Beer Camp in October, and it also includes four live Q&A sessions with some of your favorite scholars and podcast hosts including me i'll be there i'm doing one this sunday january 8th that would be Um, i think it's at nine o'clock eastern and this class is pay what you can including zero i will put a link in the show notes and hopefully this episode of the podcast gives you a little taste of what's to come i I really honestly friends no no bullcrap I cannot think of a better way to start off 2023. Tripp is a great human being. The people he brings in are world-class scholars helping you think about ways forward in the Christian tradition outside of the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. It's worth signing up. It's worth being a part of it. And like I said, I'm doing a QA and a this Sunday with a few of these scholars. It's gonna be a great time. So sign up and I will see you there. I hope you enjoy this interview. It was really amazing for me. If you like this podcast, please do us a favor and consider giving us a rating and review on either spotify or itunes that helps us so much it helps us get discovered it helps us get to the new ears of people who are desperately looking for better ways forward outside of the basement of evangelical fundamentalism all right friends without further ado here is the interview i will hopefully see you this sunday night for our live q
1: a with trip and a few other scholars that you might know mother's day is almost here
0: Hello, everyone. Hopefully, you can hear me okay. Am I good? Okay, cool. You me a little bit, Woo-hoo. maybe not that much. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Okay, we're gonna get rolling because we have a hard stop at 3:50, and um, there's a lot to talk about in this session. So, thanks for joining. We're talking about. Christian nationalism. Um, My name is Tim, if you don't know, I'm the host of the New Evangelicals podcast. And honestly, this topic in particular is something I'm probably the most involved with in my day-to-day work, tracking a lot of this. So I'm really honored to be um, hosting this dialogue. We have Leah Robinson, who's a professor of theology, and we have Diana Butler Bass, who is a Christian uh, church historian, prolific writer, and we all heard her this morning. It was beautiful. So it's great to have you. I want to start off because I think, and I'm not sure everyone is when it comes to the term Christian nationalism, and I know that a lot of the disinformation out there is well, what is really Christian nationalism? There's no real specific definition. It's a propaganda tool from the left, yada, yada, yada. Um, so I want to start off with, with some kind of definition to kind of grab us and what we're actually talking about and then we're going to maybe unpack it as much as we can and you know obviously have both of your commentaries as we talk about what is it why is it important why should we why should we be aware of it and how do we resist it and carve better paths forward um, that that are not part of that. So there's a really um, great uh, PDF that you can find under what is Christian nationalism online. It's a really well-sourced document. So uh, one paragraph or way to frame it is, Christian nationalism is a cultural framework that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. Christian nationalism contends that America has been and should always be distinctively Christian from top to bottom in its self-identity, interpretations of its own history, sacred symbols, cherished values, and public policies, and it aims to keep it that way. But the Christian in Christian nationalism is or can be more about identity than religion. It carries with it assumptions about nativism, white supremacy, authoritarianism, patriarchy, and militarism. What do you guys think about that definition? Is that pretty much to <laughs> capture it for you? Any thoughts? <laughs>
3: Well, I think that is a pretty good um, definition. And um, the only thing that I would sort of want to go with a little further is to think about it coming in three distinct flavors. And so when I work with the media about Christian nationalism, there's right now anything that is white and Christian and moves is called Christian nationalism. Uh, by many uh, journalists. And so that's not very helpful. So I try to sort out that there's a, a Calvinist form of it, which is largely known as Christian Reconstruction, or um, sometimes it's also related to something called Dominionism, which is bled over into the charismatic movement. And so, so there's that, that piece. Um, and then there is the full-on charismatic one that is like the Seven Mountains movement movement, and outright uh, dominionism that's found mostly in charismatic and Pentecostal circles. And then there is Catholic theocratic nationalism, which, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, all who are in this room, uh, we have on uh, the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Um, And so there's this form of Christian nationalism that is related to Catholic supremacy Institutionally, legally, and the idea of a new Christendom through the Catholic Church. So, so there are these three kinds. The kind that's most, the two kinds that are most familiar, I'm sure, the people in this room, are one and two. Um, but three is definitely shaping um, American legal and political life far more, even than one and two, uh, but is less well tracked.
4: Yeah, and uh, so I come from more of a theology side, which is kind of good t- to have you here as well, because you ha- oh, I thought you were guessing me.
3: <laughs> You're no, guessing- it's a gin and tonic. Oh, okay, well.
4: <laughs> I'll, I'll take it, I'll take it. Um, so I look uh, more at sort of um, what people think and believe in, because I am, yes, a practical theologian. I look at what people do with what they think and believe as well. So whereas... Um, I think a lot of people with Christian nationalism want to say this that drives me insane is that they're not really Christian. Yes, absolutely. And as a practical theologian, I perpetually say it doesn't, oh goodness, <laughs> that's a lot. It doesn't matter um, if you think they're not Christian or not because they're doing Christian theology. Uh, and I will stand behind that. I have I'll talk tomorrow. You get to hear me talk all about bad theology. And my argument is theology can be bad, and it doesn't make it any more or less theology. We want to think that Christianity is good. Oh, if someone does some sort of terrorist attack, they weren't really a Christian, right? right? They weren't really. Well, why did they do it?
0: No, I I think this is actually an important an important part uh, point to park on for a minute because um, you know on social media which I'm engaged with it's a very um, quick rebuttal. Well, those aren't real Christians. Well, they don't really believe the true gospel, uh, etc. Of course, when um, maybe something terrible happens that another person's religion does, though those are authentic and genuine people of that religion. But when it's Christianity that does something bad, no, 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 no. Those aren't the real Christians. Can you maybe go a little bit deeper on that and kind of express or explain why? No, this is actually a very, in a way, you know, consistent thread of Christianity that, that, that we can trace back a long ways.
4: Yeah. Well, you're talking about dominionism. I mean, manifest destiny. Are you going to tell the people who came over on that boat that we're talking about, God giving them America that had a very systematic way of describing why those lands were theirs? Um, are you going to say they're not doing Christianity? I mean that's tough for me because one of the things that I always we, Trip and I have fake battles between systematics and practical theology it is fake but I always say that you can systematize anything like you know you you look at I just wrote a book and one of the chapters was on the KKK if you want to see a systematic theology go into their writings and you read the first couple of i believes and you're like oh this is calvinism this makes sense. And then it takes a little bit of a sharp turn towards, you know, white is best and whatever creepy wacko stuff they start talking about. But up until that point, you were like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, that tracks, you know.
0: Um, I, I think, well, let me give you my, my um, hypothesis, why I think this is because at least in the tradition I grew up in, uh, more reformed, a little more fundamentalist, I was always taught that I was always having the right theology and everyone outside of it, even other Christians, were not true Christians. I mean, there are organizations now in those circles that try and tell people that being Catholic is not a real way of being Christian. Um, And so I wonder if there's a connection there of, there's already this like supremacy ideology in some of these circles uh, that already people are primed to believe that they're the true, true believers, even inside the Christian tradition, right? And so, of course, if we would never do that, then these other people, they're definitely not real Christians. Do you think that there's maybe a link between those two things?
3: You know, I sort of, uh, my brain got caught (laughs) for a moment when you said that you came from this tradition that was mostly Calvinist. And so I'm thinking about, that was, that was really my first experience of anything that I would call overtly Christian nationalism. This is my first husband. Yes, you just heard me say that. Uh, my first husband was a Westminster Theological Seminary graduate, and he was a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And uh, when we were married back in the early mid-80s, uh, that whole sort of world was actually having a very big argument about Christian Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this this idea had start started to come through uh, the reformed ranks about the necessity to create a political system whereby the Bible would eventually replace the United States Constitution. And um, this theology, and it, well, it is very much a theology, emerged mostly out of Dutch thinking from the early part of the 20th century where Andrew, uh, Abraham Kuyper talked about this thing called sphere sovereignty and the whole idea that Christians were called to have sovereignty over these particular uh, arenas of human endeavor and um, while Kuiper was really kind of liberal and in certain ways, theologically and and politically, he was considered to be a progressive Dutch uh, politician. Uh, it got interpreted through this very strange narrow lens uh, by by Rushduni and his his followers, and that's what became known as Christian Reconstruction in the United States. So so I ran into this because uh, my first husband was involved in a denomination where people in the Reconstructionist world were trying to actually take over uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in the early 1980s. And there was a lot of anger about that. And um, more of the Reconstructionist uh, part of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church wound up in its southern seminaries, in the Reformed Theological Seminary in Mississippi. And I'm not sure the other, they had another branch of Reformed in Florida. So so all of that is to say, for me, when I first experienced Christian nationalism, it was very much tied up with uh, correct theology and a, a vision of this is the way we interpret the Bible. The Reformed are always the ones who have the the most intellectual, the most theologically grounded interpretations. And we put up with the Lutherans, you know, we might put up with some other people, but uh, nevertheless, we're right about not only the Trinity and double predestination, but we're also right about our ideas of how society uh, should be ordered. Mm. And it's been interesting to see the development of that within the reformed world. There are still people like in the PCA, for example, who get very upset if you start talking about Christian nationalism because they remember those fights from 30 and 40 years ago. Um, but I, uh, uh, my, my sort of quick take on that fight is that although those denominations have always tried to distance themselves from the language of Christian nationalism, it's seeped into the carpet of all of their churches. And so it sort of, is just around as a lingering kind of theological possibility that a lot of their pastors embrace or imbibe in some way, shape or form. So it is, it is linked with, it, it is theology yeah. and it's also linked with the idea of we're right and everybody else is wrong.
4: Well, I grew up Southern Baptist, so I don't know anything about no. right theology. <laughs> really?
0: Wow, that's amazing.
4: <laughs> bless my heart. <laughs> yeah, bless your heart. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's right, isn't it? When you're in that world, you don't really think that there's anything else. Like, I yeah. remember yeah. thinking, you know, if you drank or... <laughs> drink or or what is that
3: wine and wine and a
4: gin (laughs) and tonic I don't know where they want this to go but (laughs) it's gonna be a dance party um but yeah if you did any of those things you know sex as well uh, um that you were gonna go to hell like that was it and there was no if ands or buts about that there wasn't any kind of and they thought they were right now my (laughs) I have a relative Uh, who always said, those Presbyterians, they think too much. Why are they thinking? You know, so they, we knew about the Presbyterians, but they were those thinking people down the road. So I'm sure they'd be happy to know that. But um, I teach a class on uh, religion in America, and we go through the history. And one of the really interesting things is um, the religious history. If you look at that in America, which oftentimes we look at the political history, but we don't look at the religious history is uh I always ask my students who was the first person to say make america great again There's been a lot yeah
0: there have been
4: But it might but it, but your answer might well be right
0: Well, there was even... Um, Ronald
4: Reagan said it. Reagan. That was his campaign slogan was make it great again. And he was talking about the 1950s. And
0: wasn't there a rally in 1939 of 20,000 Nazis at Madison Square Garden yes. and they recited that ex- exact language of making America yeah, great Yeah, that's again? correct. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's mean, a long is
4: It is a long... But my question to my students is always, when was it great? And that's not an anti-patriotic thing. It's asking them, what time in history are we trying to recapture? And I think this is directly related to this Christian nationalism is you're searching for some utopian point, even when Reagan said it, like I said, he was talking about the 50s. Well, the 50s weren't great for everybody, especially if you're a person of color, right? So it is one of those things where we're, we're always striving to recover something. And so my question as we go through the history is, when were we this thing that they're trying to do? And I don't know the answer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of my struggles with uh, a session like this is I'm just like lighting up like, oh my God, there are so many paths that we should go down, but we only have like 30 minutes. So, but I think... I think it's important just to uh, maybe comment on two things. Number one, your comment about R.J. Rush Dooney is really key to a lot of this. If you want to understand why there's an assault on the public school systems, if you want to understand just so much of what we're seeing today, um, Rush Dooney has many books, but one is called Law and Liberty, and it's a six hour read that will just give you all of the quiet parts out loud um, and that many people really are building upon whether they realize that or not. Um, and really dominionism does come from that and then eventually charismatic folks pick it up and you give the seven mountain mandate. Um, but one thing I think that's worth maybe pulling on is this idea of myth, okay? Is that is that Christian nationalism relies on a mythology of what America was somewhere at some point in the past that we have to get back to but like you said so well when and and, and it, it doesn't matter in 1939 nazis in madison square garden were saying that to go back where and now here we are in 2022 i just think it's important to realize that for some people who maybe this is new like oh my god what how did trump show up and get elected well, that's how I thought until I started reading, and I'm like, oh my goodness, there's been a consistent thread of this rhetoric that's, that has mythologized our great American past that somehow maybe the leftists or the secularists have taken over, and now we, we have to take America back for God, which is mm-hmm. Incidentally, the name of Samuel Perry's book, which is really worth reading, by the way, on Christian nationalism. So, yeah, I think that 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 part about about myth is so important here.
3: Yeah, well, I was going to follow up just yeah. with what you're saying, really, um, because, yes, Ronald Reagan said that and Ronald Reagan also articulated much of the myth. And so, his, what was his final speech as president? He gets up and he talks about the city set upon a hill and how honored he has been to serve it. Well, years and years ago, when I was teaching American religious history, we would often begin with John Winthrop's sermon, "A yep. uh, City Set Upon a Hill." And so, you know, now I look back at that, and I was teaching at an evangelical college, and i I wish I wouldn't have started there. But in effect, I was starting with the myth that I had been taught about American religious history, and that is the Puritans came because they were escaping religious persecution. And uh, there was this great you know, Mayflower Compact and then Winthrop's Sermon. And that becomes sort of the basis of this idea of America being exceptional, set apart, that God was going to do something distinctive, that it was a new Israel. And all of that mythology gets linked into uh, race and social structures. And I think, as um, we were reminded this morning, it also gets linked into capitalism and economic ideas uh, to build, in effect, a mythology over many generations of what it means to be really American. And each generation looks back at some part of it, but there's all still a cumulative remaking of the myth that's going on as the next generation is looking back and saying, oh, well, it was the 1950s. The people in the 1950s were looking back to the 19, yep. you know, yep. teens or whatever. And the people in the 20s were saying, oh, no, no, you know, that's the great era of the Klan. They were looking back toward when they started stamping down uh, reconstruction and then they were looking back towards when black people were slaves and a lot of it really does go back to race.
0: I I was just going to say that. I'm sorry to cut you off there. No,
4: no, no. I was just going to say if you study, I mean I'm totally, I'm a part-time historian so if you study, very part-time. I'm a part-time theologian. Very (laughs) part-time. I said said that and then I was like oh my gosh.
3: No, no, I'm
4: very (laughs) generous. Don't worry about me. Um, You kind of have to know history if you're doing theology I will say. But People always talk about the Trump thing. And in my classes, you know, or any president, pick your poison. You know, they all have versions of it. Is People say, I can't believe X, Y, and Z got elected. Just watch the trends. If you actually look at it, it, it made a lot of sense that he got elected. Uh, now, did it make sense? Was I happy about it? Now, that's a different story. We'll have that over the wine later. But the actual trends in terms of numbers I mean, it, it kind of did. And so I think you're quite right. We're always looking back to this thing um, that doesn't, this myth, you're, as you said. Yeah. And if one president doesn't do it, instead of sliding to the middle, we slide to the other side to try to regain it, I think.
1: Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement.
0: have to understand and for some this might sound hyperbolic but i don't believe it is that this all comes back to white supremacy and and minimizing the rights for people who are not usually white men or people attached to the circles of white men um, and you can trace this over and over again with the rise of the Klan and in fact if you read some of their literature or even see some of their videos like David Duke you know discussing the immigration problem in America it's the same rhetoric that we hear today from today's politicians in certain circles and same media um, um, you know um, um, talking heads and even in you know the 1950s when segregation right this whole push for integration you look at, at, at what folks who wanted to make America great again, where they stood on that issue. They were not for integration. In fact, unfortunately, Southern evangelicals were the, leadi- they were the leaders of, for fighting back against integrating the races from, a, in their mind, a biblical, the Bible is clear perspective. I mean, I literally have a Bob Jones sermon archived on my computer from the 1960s where if you just replace the word black for queer person, you have the same arguments here today, being used back then to defend why God demands that the races stay separate. And Christian nationalism is tied to all of that. And that's why I say personally for my platforms that in my opinion, Christian nationalism is th- the biggest threat to a democracy that supports equitable rights for all, that supports pluralism, because ultimately many folks and leaders in these movements, not so much the followers, they don't really know all the details, they're just kind of on board to make America great again. But many of these leaders, know exactly what they're doing and they are, they've said it, they're anti-democratic. They, they do not support this idea of, of, of democracy. So we have to be aware of that.
4: And when you look at that Bob Jones sermon, I bet it's pretty systematic in its approach. Oh, totally. You don't have to like it. Right. But that's a different subject altogether. But it, it so if you present it to someone and say here is my logic, would it hold up? I bet it would. Again, you don't have to like it, right. but that's the danger, isn't it? Is when you have someone who's speaking, not like a wild person running through the street, you know, with a megaphone, but you have someone presenting something that actually makes sense in the way that things have been presented to you to make sense, except the conclusion is terrible, right?
3: There is a really good book um, in the last couple of years that was quietly influential, but I don't think it ever got quite as much attention as it should. And I'm sure many of you know, Heather Cox Richardson's uh, letters from an American. She writes every day on Substack and those are great, but she also published a book about two years ago called um, how the South won the civil war. And that book, she makes an argument that very few people have made. And I think it's the right argument. And she talks about American history and how it is a fight between two essentially um, contradictory social structures. And so she says the one social structure is actually in the Declaration of Independence. It's the idea that people really are equal and that uh, human dignity and human rights should be for all, even though you know it's still in the male language. Nevertheless, there's this, this incipient idea about the equality of all human beings, and the idea, the dream of making a society around that. And then there's this other thing that is a hierarchical society. And it's a society that privileges uh, race, class, and sex, um, and creates an oligarchy with those three intersectional uh, privileges. And through American history, what what the case she makes is that um, people in power, people who have something to protect, manipulate the three different privileges of race, class, and gender in order to maintain oligarchic power and keep the equality structure Um, in tow to keep equality from rising up. And so you see these moments in American history where um, you'll get white women cooperate with white men to push down black people. And then other times you'll you'll see actually uh, men who are middle class or upper class from a variety of different racial backgrounds combining because of their class status to keep women from achieving something. And uh, then she talks uh, about how, This just works in these several different moments of incredible potential for change in American history. And so um, when you were talking about that being theology all the time, you can open up Twitter almost any day. And there's an argument about egalitarianism versus complementarianism. On, oh, on Twitter. I'm historically
4: bad at Twitter. But I'm, <laughs> I said I'm going to get better at this conference. So.
3: And, and this is really about <laughs> theology. Here's yeah. this basic kind of argument that's been going on in evangelicalism now for, what, 30 years, and what it does is it picks up two different streams of the Bible. Yeah. One is uh, Galatians 3.28, in Christ there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ, and Ephesians chapter 5. And and so what, what uh, Cox Richardson does is talk about how these two things are the American argument. And... Um, of course, what we're calling white Christian nationalism now is highly dependent on this kind of hierarchical structure. And you know how you make
4: that structure even more powerful? You add religion to it. That's exactly right. Right? You put theology behind it. Well, then you get that emotion and that feeling, and that, well, of course, because it's God, right? Then it's not just my brain, it's God. Right,
3: so then you're justifying uh, maleness, whiteness, wealth. Because God said so. Because God said so, right. Okay,
0: can I try and poke a hole in this theology point that you both made? Yes. Because this is my own inner voice I think about, and I would love your perspective on this. Because while I do agree that, yes, this is is a theological movement and et cetera, I'm noticing at least I've noticed, maybe it's been there all along, but I've just started noticing over the past couple years how folks who would normally call each other the other in Christendom, in Christian spaces, um, are all of a sudden unified (laughs) over their political affiliation. So two, I, I wanna give three examples of that. First off is you have Kenneth Copeland, who's a wealth prosperity preacher, and then you have James White, who is the complete opposite of that, uh, more of like, a, I would say maybe a Rush Dooney type as far as his theology. But they both agree on all of the COVID propaganda that came out. They believe that America needs to be made Christian again. And they would really agree, despite the fact that James White would call Kenneth Copeland a complete heretic who's preaching a false gospel. And you also mentioned earlier the uh, Catholic theocratic nationalism. I was thinking throw
3: Clarence Thomas on that lunch table and we've got a complete threesome.
0: Right, so how... The terrible threesome. So my question is, <laughs> who needs is, a drink? Yeah. So my, so my question is, and I agree with you by the way. I'm like, yes, there is. It is religiously motivated for sure. But all of a sudden, people that would normally be fighting about who's really in and out, they seem to have a bigger unifier than just their own theological tradition. What what's your thoughts on that?
4: Well, because what wins your your motivations, your your power, your your striving for power, or your theological and ethical beliefs? Mm-hmm. I would say to answer your question, or at least to speculate, that people care more about maintaining power and maintaining the status quo. And if you are someone in power, and perhaps you contemplate your theology, and that theology goes against that maintaining of power, I think you're going to reject the theology. Um, Now you have those differences in history, those people that we love to talk about that we hold in high regard who have rejected that, but there's a reason we can name them because there's not a lot of them. And I think there's a reason the founding fathers wanted to separate church and state and it wasn't because, gosh, the endless debates of their own religious backgrounds. It wasn't because of that, I personally think. I think it was because they saw what it could do if you combine those two worlds together the need for power and religion. And they knew the consequences. And unfortunately, we're living those consequences in 2022. So when you see those groups of people together, what I see is a striving for power and a maintaining of the status quo. And they found this, well, God said it. And so it's just adding to their argument, which is sad that that's, I'm not surprised by one of those, but...
3: (laughs) Um, I think that is power as well. Uh, and, you know, there's there are theological differences that any group can learn to put somewhat aside if they have some greater goal. And so if your greater goal, for example, is... As it is with Christian Reconstruction, uh, that every person who is uh, gay should be killed in the name of a state because they're not worthy of life. Um, well, then you go around and you look for the other people who share that view. And whether or not they're quite with you on the niceties of the Trinity or what double predestination is like, you you might say, okay, well, you know, so they're a little wrong in that. We can talk about that later. But in the meantime, let's make sure that gay people can't get married and then also try. To created these laws that put gay people back in the closet or take yes. women's rights away. Right. So you can you, that that becomes about power that becomes about a different kind of theological vision because I do think that they're drawing off of theology in those cases uh, but it's not what we think about in terms of systematic theology and yeah, traditional I mean terms. they
4: justified slavery on theology and it was very systematic like I said I didn't like it right. but It existed and they had a whole set of reasons that were
3: logical, if not awful. I don't want to scare anybody, but um, this would be an appropriate time to bring up Steve Bannon.
4: <laughs> now, I just add it. We've already had a threesome. Now we have a foursome.
3: Well, uh, well, you're talking about Christian nationalism. It's so Before. important for us to understand that it's not just an American phenomenon.
0: Yes, please. Yes,
3: we ma'am. put it in our context, and rightly so, because um, this is what we're experiencing on a daily basis. But globally, right now. There's three movements that have joined forces uh, to create a different kind of West, to change the nature of Western culture. And those three movements are Ruskimir, uh, out of Russian orthodoxy, the idea of Moscow being the true center of the Christian world with right doctrine, right worship, and... and, um, the, a moral vision uh traditionalist roman catholicism which is the group that we sometimes talk about here in the united states but because of america's a history of being anti-catholic i think that a lot of people are afraid to talk about it in journalism circles but there is this very um I mean, much more organized form of nationalist Roman Catholicism that's trying to actually recreate a white Christendom vision for the church and hates Pope Francis. They think that Francis is the anti-pope. And that the real Pope, Benedict, is being kept in the basement of the Vatican under lock and key. Really? I
4: didn't yes, know that. This is really true. I knew the first part. I didn't know the second yeah. part. Oh, he, I thought he was like on a holiday no, somewhere. No, no,
3: poor Benedict. He's oh. a prisoner.
0: No, right. they beat him.
4: Oh, that's sad. <laughs> that's yeah, they sad? Beat him.
3: And then the third kind of sphere is the sphere of American evangelicalism that bleeds over yeah. um, into Latin America and South America and and that's the more of the Christian reconstruction Seven Mountain stuff, etc. And so what like Bannon has done yeah. is actually drawn relational connections between these two or between these three large global versions of Christian nationalisms yeah. and has put them in conversation uh, with one another. And uh, the goal is to overturn what we understand to be Western culture now uh, about freedom and how it's grown out of the Enlightenment, and return to uh, theocratically organized uh, forms of governments all across uh, what we understand to be the West. What, what's
4: interesting too is the KKK just were just so they they didn't think that well what I've read that. The catholics could ever be really well they didn't believe a lot of people could be really american let's clarify that but one of the the people they the groups they didn't think were catholics because they were too loyal to the vatican and to pope and etc to be loyal to america in the way that they quote should be so i think that's interesting that, that that's becoming now a, 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 just a different shade of that i guess
0: yeah. So we have a hard stop in 10 minutes, and I oh. want to get to as many as we can because there's so much to talk about. I will say, if anyone wants to continue the discussion after this, come find me because I will talk about this forever. Um, I think we have to talk about um, right-wing media propaganda because Steve Bannon is part of that with Breitbart, and there's a whole um, network of folks who Prager are – you Yeah, we'll talk about that that offline. I have some thoughts on that. But yeah, um, PragerU being one, uh, Turning Point USA, which now has Turning Point Faith, which is targeting evangelical churches, including starting their own um, uh, academies for kids to fight on their website, the woke culture. Um, It's important to understand how unified right-wing media is to completely shape narratives off of buzzwords that they either appropriate from black culture, like the the term woke, uh, or from academic purposes like CRT, and they then straw man them with their own definition, then they attack the straw man. And this is actually incredibly effective. I mean, terms that we would never have thought about seven, eight years ago, like CRT, That 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 existed since the 80s as a as a legal framework for thinking about things. It's a theory, okay, (laughs) Um, and now it's this buzz. It's a catch-all term, which by the way is intentional. Christopher Rufo will tell you that on Twitter. It's all there, Um, but I do want to, and again, for sake of time, I'm going to fast forward some of this and get to my main question. When people say, and I hear this, man, most of my work is done on social media, and I hear this all the time, and I try and be gracious, but sometimes I get just frustrated, and I try to yell at people via audio messages, but I don't, for the record. I'm good about it. Um, well, that's good. What do you say to people when they go, well, well, both sides? You know, the Democrats... You know, they, they don't want freedom either, and yeah, I get Trump isn't that great, but, but guys, both sides, you know, like, they're really fighting for like for, for the good of America. What do you say in response to that? Because I know what I say to that, but I like to hear maybe a more, you know, um, intellectual approach <laughs> to how uh, you would respond to something I was like gonna that. go
4: into Kanye West, so oh, I don't yeah. know if that's intellectual or not, but I do hang out with 18 to 22 year olds a lot, so. <laughs> At work, not just normally. Uh, Thank you for clarifying. Yes, yeah, I, I'm a professor. I don't, but um, so I hear about. But but they did you did you hear about the? This is not a tangent. It's related. But the white lives matter. Oh yeah, yeah. Have you
0: heard about a Tucker Carlson interview? Oh yeah, okay. yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah, I'm not good at Twitter, but I'm I'm good at some Easy. some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, so. I think it's an incredible distraction, and I think it's damaging, but also i we have to come to expect it. And I think that it's sort of like the bad theology, good theology. Yes, I'm going to hype this forever. I'm sorry. But to see the good theology, you have to see the bad too. And I think it's one of those things where with this, whenever he sported, for those of you who don't know, Kanye West, very famous Musical artist wore a White Lives Matter shirt, and he had a great just, I mean, a great as in like large, not great, um, justification for it. And I think it's one of those things where um, if we do choose to say, if we demonize a side, right. like the right wing media, if we demonize, which, which is what happened, by the way, all these stars came out and said, Oh, this is awful. You've d- done a terrible thing. You've made us go back. In history and all this sort of stuff, it didn't progress the discussion any further. Right. And so I think it's one of those things where we can demonize that right-wing media and we can we can call them out, righteous anger, all of that kind of stuff. But what's our goal? What is our actual goal in doing that? Do we think they're going to go away? Right. I don't. Right. So I think you you kind of have to evaluate. There's a great book called "Strangers in." their own land you maybe it's by Hothschild, I think and it's this idea that the sociologist had and and so she's at Berkeley very liberal sociologist she goes to Louisiana to look at the tea party and to try to figure out she wanted to understand it actually and when she's writing if you read it all of a sudden I had this great wave of sympathy not empathy um for this group who felt so incredibly marginalized and as someone who was a woman growing up in the southern baptist church who wanted to be a minister my entire life i thought wow they're feeling it for that one moment you know that one second they're feeling it that thing that i felt my entire childhood and so i guess that's that's not an answer to your question but it's one of those things where it's not saying looking at both sides it's saying what is what is your goal and then also what are they feeling that you can relate to that you have felt in your life and as I've said it is not justifying it and I want to be really clear about that but it is saying I understand it I don't understand their particular version well if you
0: can't understand it you can't dismantle it Right. And I think that sometimes in the spaces I exist in, and I've, I have been guilty of this, you've seen my hot Twitter takes sometimes, um, you know, um, and I think there's a time for that. But one thing I don't do is, is I call those people dumb. Mm. Charlie Kirk's an idiot. No, he's <laughs> actually quite intelligent. Doing something, I mean, Prager U's stupid. No, they're really brilliant. And we have to understand it so we can give better ways forward. In that and in, 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 in not trying to minimize it by, by shaming or by dehumanizing, right, right. but taking it seriously because yeah. it is serious, but also exposing it for its, its true motives. And
4: you can do that because the thing is if you say they're stupid, that argument's done. Yeah. that conversation is done.
3: And one of the most interesting things about shaming or telling someone they're stupid is 100 years ago, we had this thing called the fundamentalist modernist controversy in American Protestantism. Yes. And um, liberals and fundamentalists had a big fight. And in the course of that fight, there were two stereotypes of partisans that emerged out of that argument. Um, One was that liberals were heretics. Uh, which is something we still have with Never us. have heard that before. As all really? of us have probably been called An on American. social media. <laughs> and un-American, exactly. Yeah. Um, but the fundamentalists in the course of that argument were referred to as backwards and hicks. And um, if you go back and look at the literature, one of the things that's fascinating is that people who thought that they were at the center of American culture, who were actually fairly intellectual, very intellectual people, all of a sudden found themselves on the receiving end of this, essentially media piling on where they, they had gone from being college professors and pastors to being Hicks and backwoods rustics who you could hit them with an egg. If you took a Pullman car anywhere through the South. Um, And so that really, th- it created this culture of incredible shame inside of fundamentalism that I am actually convinced has never been healed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what happens is when you go at someone who is a fundamentalist and you yell at them and you call them these names, you're just walking into this 100-year-old story and that's a really bad place to be psychologically with somebody. And so like when, if you think about uh, Trump and Hillary Clinton in that debate well, that got s- that was so weird. Yeah. Um oh, is that the one where he was like stalking her, yeah, remember, like that, looming oh, over her the whole time? Yeah, the, the creepiest <laughs> presidential debate ever in history. Um, <laughs> <wanna> is <laughs> it hi- when hi- when Hillary was forced to sort of defend the deplorable's comment? Yeah. Which see, she called them deplorables. It was as good as J, uh, 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 H.L. Mencken calling fundamentalists um, Hicks yep. in 1925. Yep. And and then, of course, what does Trump yell back? He says globalist. Well, what is a globalist other than an unpatriotic American heretic
4: yeah. and the identity soup? I tell my students, yeah. you're a communist, you're un-American, you're un-Christian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: And so those two terms, it's a hundred year old shaming enterprise. Yeah. And and so that doesn't work. Um, at all it just reifies it and makes it worse and the people who are being called hicks say you know see you never can listen to those people they're just awful and then the people who are the heretics look at the hicks and say oh they just are dumb they won't listen to anybody well
0: that that is literally how rush limbaugh became rush limbaugh he played on that you You can't play on it for money you can't trust the elites you can't trust the mainstream media They, they think that you're dumb and then he would play the clips Right? And it's like, yeah. well, okay, you know, uh, that doesn't look good.
4: But so, going back to your question, though, but then that doesn't solve it, right? Because I'm thinking about the InfoWars guy, whatever. Alex Jones. Yeah. Another one. Yeah. Anyway, we need, whatever. We need
0: another hour. I
4: was going to say, this, this, this threesome has turned into an eightsome that nobody wants to participate. <laughs> no either. one ones, wants to participate in. Anyway, but he just, you know, the stuff he was saying, it. But then you get to the point, and all the stuff I said remains true, yeah. but when they lie. Yeah. And they lie at a point where everyone knows, like the the Parkland stuff. Like we saw those kids, yeah, yeah. you know, and it, it and the horribleness of that. It's like, so. But then, what do you do when
3: it's so clear? This yeah. isn't just a personality clash; it's just lies. Yes. Um, One of the places there that I do go, I don't know if this would be helpful for anyone at all, um, but instead of saying, you know, white lives matter, or black lives matter, and having that argument, um, sometimes when people have asked me, try to pin me to a wall on that, I say, well, what I depend upon is my baptismal vow. And I'm an Episcopalian, and my baptism vow, part of my baptism vows is that I respect the dignity of every human person. That's right. And then I, then I say, do you? Can you enter into that to me? What would, what would that mean to you? Yeah. If you, if you took that seriously, respect the dignity of every human person. Yeah. And then people are like going, oh, my gosh, you know, that's oh, – I never heard that. You know, they kind of – they they shrink away from it because they they haven't been invited into that conversation. Yeah. Or then they actually start to engage. And you can have a real discussion about what – respecting the dignity of every human person means say in sand about Sandy hook or say about, because I mean, that's what Alec Jones did. He's violated the dignity of every human person in that situation. And so that becomes a different conversation than just Alec Jones should go to hell because he's a terrible person. Right. I mean, the the
0: way you fight dehumanization is not by dehumanizing the other, right? You try and model a better path forward that, that, that values even that person who is twisting their imago day image to do harm to others. And that's, by the way, I should also mention that I think for a white evangelical male, that's easy to say, because I'm often not on the other end of that kind of vitriol, okay? And I understand that there are other times where that may, might not be always the case, so I, I respect that. And But just to kind of close the conversation, I know we're out of time and he's giving me the look, but you know, my my dad was at the January 6th insurrection. Um, he says he wasn't part of the violence, but he went to go see Trump protests, yada, yeah, yada. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I, I've had to wrestle a lot with that, and also wrestle with the fact that my dad, I've watched him be incredibly kind and giving to people. I, I grew up in, in construction, Working with my dad painting walls. I was homeschooled, so the field trip was paint paint the customer's house. Listening to Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity, and then we're at a corporate job, and Sean Hannity is talking about how immigration is destroying America. And there's my dad trying to learn Spanish just to listen and, and talk to the cleaners. And I'm like, I don't, what is happening? How are we listening to this? But you're being so kind to these people. Or my dad is listening to someone saying, you know, people who can't pay their mortgage are just lazy. And then there's my dad paying our neighbor's mortgage because they fell on hard times. Mm-hmm. This is really weird, like, things do not make sense for me but but rehumanizing him and trying to understand and understanding he comes from a history of trauma that he's never learned or had the tools to deal with right has helped me see him through a lens of trying to rehumanize him in my mind and not dehumanize him because i want him i want him to see you know a better way forward but if i said you're a fascist this is garbage what were you that would have killed the relationship you know, and we would we would not be even in any kind of friendship or relationship that we are now, you know. So I think that's important. And again, I'm not saying it's easy. Online it's even more difficult, but I think that if we're gonna for those of you who take this claim of trying to follow the Christ or follow Christ as seriously as we can, as as much as it's difficult, we have to find ways to rehumanize the conversation. And to and to be able to explain to people that way, and then you can unpack the lies. <laughs> then you can say, Yeah, Tucker Carlson, now that we're you know, you get me really problematic. Can we really talk about that yeah. instead of here's all the evidence why you are just blah blah blah, you know? So, I'm all about trying to get change done, and I think that to do that, we have to find better paths forward. So, yeah. Yeah. that being said, I appreciate both of you for, for being here. Can we give them a round of applause? Thank so you. good. There's so much more we could talk about, that's for a different day, but thank you for being here.